turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. A few weeks ago we preached about the life of Jonathan, and Jonathan was born, and today we're going to carry on with the life of David, and we have David. What was that, David? I think that's kind of cool. Family Vision Night uh, on Wednesday. Thank you for those who were part of that. Thank you for your input. We're going to make some changes, particularly around the Lord's Supper, even though you'll notice that today. But if you weren't there and you'd like to know what was going on, please come and talk to me or talk to somebody else who was there. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's carry on that conversation. First Samuel chapter 21, I've titled my message, When I Am Afraid. When I Am Afraid. You read all 15 verses of 1 Samuel 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young man for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us at all, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag the Edomite, chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you here, have you not here a spear or a sword in hand? For I have brought not, neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. The priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Let's pray. God, we've already asked, we've sung this way. We ask that you would speak to us. Pray that you'd remove your servant Delroy and that you would simply just talk. Your spirit would be the one that speaks. Would you open our eyes to behold beautiful things?
use in this book? Would you transform us? Would you renew us? Oh Lord, how can we face tomorrow if we don't hear from you? So God, I ask that you do this great and wonderful work for your glory and because of your mercy. In your name we pray. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning, I'd like us to accomplish four tasks. Okay? First, I want us to remember David's dilemma. Secondly, I want us to hunt for clues from the scriptures to perceive David's spiritual condition at this time. And thirdly, I want us to consider Jesus. And finally, I want to ask, why did God allow such pain in David's life? So four tasks we're going to remember, hunt, consider, and ask. Have you ever read the scriptures in uh, particularly a life like David and you go, man, I don't measure up. Guy takes these seems at times to be superhuman. Sometimes we, we stick him on a pedestal. At least his earlier life would do that. But I think today's text is going to uh, show us a David that, like us, is in need of a great and good God. Let's begin by remembering David's dilemma. We'll do this really quickly, but remember David had this incredible encounter with Goliath. He overcomes the giant, he defeats the giant, and immediately we're told that Saul takes him from his family. Now that taking wasn't a good thing. The taking was what the prophet said would happen if you had a king like the nations. And so Saul takes David from his family, uproots him from his family, and brings him into his court. Now you think, okay, well he's eating with the king, he's, there's all kinds of good things happening, and God's hand was on David, we're told that. But very quickly, David is driven from the king's court. Not once, not twice, but three times, Saul throws a spear at him. David has to elude and he has to flee. Then Saul sends his henchmen to surround David's house. David has to flee by night. With the help of his young wife, Michael. And he has to run from home. Told he runs to the prophet Samuel, and then he we're told he flees from the prophet Samuel. And we saw that last week when he flees to Jonathan, he flees to the covenant, he flees to the promise. And after a, a, a time, a, an emotional time with Jonathan, we're told he has to flee from Jonathan. In fact, the text tells us that they both wept. David was weeping the most. Last chapter, that's where we leave him. We now see him traveling about two miles, two, about two miles from Gibeah, the, the home of, of, uh, of, of Saul, to, to Nob. And I have a picture of David weeping the entire way. And he goes to the priest Ahimelech, and, and, and he goes to the priest, to a priest that in the past he's gone to for advice. We're told that in chapter 22. This priest had inquired of God for him in the past. And yet, here he comes. And so we need to remember David's dilemma. We need to remember his predicament. We need to remember uh, this is a difficult season in his life. 
His coming to Nob and his coming to Gath is like a low point in his life. Maybe you're coming today and you're at one of those low points in your life. I don't know. But I think David speaks to us. The Word of God speaks to us here. And I think what we need to do is hunt for clues in Scripture to understand David's spiritual condition at this time. I told you he comes to Nob, and the Scriptures tell us he comes to Nob to the priest of Himelech, and we're told that this priest is trembling. Are you alone? And we're not told why he's trembling, but we probably can understand that he might be trembling because. He knows there's something going on between Saul and David. Here's the man that he's gone to inquire of God in the past, and now he's trembling. Then notice verse 2, when, when he says, Why are you alone? Verse 2, David said. But what does David say to Ahimelech? He lies. He lies. Now, some have suggested might maybe David is kind of telling the half-truth, saying the king, being God, has charged me with a matter. That's possible, but I don't think so. I think the way that Himelech takes it is Saul has sent him. And I think that's what David's trying to pass on. He's trying to pass on to the lie. David knows you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, so what's he doing? Notice in verse 7, there's something ominous about this. This one verse just kind of stands all by itself. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doak, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. It's just, the, the narrator just plucks that in there and then carries on and it seems to ignore it. But we see in chapter 22, when David saw Doak, the Edomite, in verse 22 of chapter 22, he knew that he would surely tell Saul. I'll let you read that chapter and see what happens, or we'll come back next week. It's ominous. And then what about the sword? Why does David go to and say, Do you got anything like a spear or a sword? Why didn't he have his sword that Jonathan had given him? I don't know. We're told he, had, was, in, he was in a hurry. But that strikes me as odd. What does he need the sword for? Remember in chapter 17 and verse 45 when, when David is in front of Goliath, the giant? This is what David says. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It's almost as if David's eyes have moved off of the God that brought him and helped him conquer Goliath and has brought him, his eyes has been placed on this sword that's glimmering and shimmering and as if that is somehow going to spare him and save him. What's interesting is what David says when he talks about the sword. He says, there is none like that. Bob, you've talked about Hannah. That's how our story in 1 Samuel begins. And I think her prayer in chapter 2 kind of just lays the groundwork for this beautiful, incredible book. 
And as she's exalting the Lord in verse 1, she goes on to say in verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord, there, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Oh, she got it. She realized that she was lowly, but God had done an amazing thing. David realized when he, when he was in front of Goliath that it was God that would overcome him. But now it seems like this glimmering sword. I think David was sunk to a low point in his life. I think it becomes even clearer when you start recognizing in verse 10 that he flees to Gath, a quiche, the king of Gath. Gath is the hometown of Goliath. Why is he leaving home and going to Gath? Well, we're not told. But David does that later, chapter 27, and there we're told why he goes. Chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And I find that fascinating. Have you ever done that? This is, what, what's going on here is David is talking to David. Have you ever talked to yourself? Have you ever told truths that aren't true? You said things to yourself that isn't true? I guess they're not truths then, right? But you get my point. That's what David's doing here. Because up until that point, Saul has no power over David. He can't defeat him. In chapter 16, God said to David, you will be king. How can Saul kill him? If Saul kills David, David won't be king. David's listening to his own words rather than God's words. It wasn't just that God was saying these things. In chapter 25, Abigail says to David, so it was kind of the word on the street that God had said this. Abigail says in, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter um, 25, verse 29 and 30, listen to these words. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the, li of the living in the care of the Lord your God and the wives of your enemies. He shall sling out from the hollow of the sling. I think David flees to Gath because he's telling himself that if he doesn't do that, Saul will kill him. Now it's fascinating, there's another clue as we look at this text. David rose and he went to Achish the king in, in Psalm 34. David writes a psalm thinking, I think, thinking back about this event. And in the subtitle before it, it says that when, when David was a prisoner in Gath uh, under Abimelech, not Ahimelech that we just saw at the beginning of the chapter, but Abimelech. And you're going, who's Abimelech? Abimelech is a title. Akish is a name, so Abimelech is like King Akish. When's the last time we heard that name Abimelech? Genesis, chapter 
chapter 20. Then again in the book of Genesis, chapter uh, 26. This, these were none other than Abram and Isaac who go to the land of the Philistines. And Abram and Isaac, they both go to the land of the Philistines and, and there they're scared that uh, they're going to be killed. And so in their fear, what do they do? They lie. But both of them, father, like father, like, like son, like father, like son, how they go? She's my sister. Speaking of their wife. Chapter 26 of Genesis actually tells us why Isaac, Isaac does this. Isaac does this because he's afraid. It says that very clearly, very plainly. Well, let's look at some other clues. Notice what the people of the land, the people of the Philistine land, the enemies of David, what are they saying? And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And look at verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish. Sometimes we talk to ourselves and ignore the word of God. But sometimes we listen to the words of others and ignore the word of God. I think that's what David's doing. As a result, he's much afraid. These aren't words we often hear of David. In 2 Samuel 6, 9, we're told that he was afraid, that he was afraid of the judgment, he was afraid of God, which is not a bad thing. But here he's just afraid. And as I look at this other story, he ends, he's acting like a madman. Now, it seems like his act actually gets him free. But as I read this, I'm going... Boy, that sure sounds like King Saul back at the end of chapter 19 that we read two weeks ago. And I think the clues, as we look at the text, we begin to see that the, the same David who stood in faith before a bear, before a lion, before a giant, is now a man that's struggling in a state of fear, and he lies, he's filled with unbelief. I think it's good for us to see this David. Because I think I see Elroy all over him so many times. Now, third task today is to consider Jesus. The main character of every text, of every passage, is none other than God himself. And some passages are a little more difficult to see that. We don't want to just focus our attention on David and say we need to be like David. We need to take a look at how does this text tell us about God? How does this text point us to Jesus? Don't you marvel that David in this condition of unbelief, in this condition of fear, in this condition of lying is still provided for? And is still delivered. Now you might say, well, that was David's ingenuity. That's not how David saw it. David wrote two psalms in light of this event. One was 34, which I've already alluded to. The other is Psalm chapter 56. We're going to go there in a minute, but 
I want you to notice how God provided. Jesus is speaking about this passage in Matthew 12. And he says this, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Why was David allowed to do this? Because, as Jesus said, Ahimelech understood the intent of the law was fulfilled through the act of mercy. Ahimelech, moved by God, saw that David was in need and understood that, yeah, this is the law, but the law, the intent of the law is to show mercy, and here's an opportunity to show mercy, and he does that. That's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 and following. And then in Psalm 56, listen to what David says. Oh, I love this psalm. He says, you have kept count of my tossings, you put my tears in your bottle, and, and, and are they not in your book? You kept count of my tossings, my wandering, some translations will say. You put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? As David is going to Nob in tears, as he's weeping more than Jonathan, God is taking account of that, and God is showering mercy upon him, even though he doesn't deserve such mercy. He provides for the king to be. I think David looks back at this, and he sees that it wasn't his ingenuity. He sees it was none other than God that provided for him. God also delivered him. The Lord rescues David. Why? Was it because he was so faithful and good? No. The Lord rescued David because he promised David that he would be king. And that promise wasn't based on any conditions. And later in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he would say that, that this, this David, that his offspring, his throne, would be forever. And he was talking about none other than Jesus Christ. And that promise was not based on a condition. So not because of David's ingenuity and not because David was such a good guy that God in his grace delivers David. Nothing short of remarkable. You see the care and the love of David God or David? Some of you in this room are probably unbelievers. My prayer is that the kindness of God would lead you to repentance. Now, very quickly, let me ask the final question, deal with the final task that I think's at hand. Now, simply, why did God allow such suffering in David's life? Now, I don't have all the answers, but I think the scriptures give us some of those answers. You see, God comes to David through the prophet Samuel and says, you're going to be king. The Spirit of God anoints David, chapter 16. Chapter 17, he goes straight into battle against Goliath. 
his life actually gets more difficult and more 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 harder. Is that a good word? After the Spirit of God falls on him, we've seen that, and we're going to see that really clearly. But why? I think that psalm we just looked at, Psalm 56, actually paints a picture. If you want to go there, go for it. Psalm 56, we're going to look at several verses, or just sit back and listen. But this is David. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And he says a little later, verse 10, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I think David, reflecting on this moment in life, comes to realize he, he need not be afraid. He can trust what God has said. And though he will stumble in the future, this hardship is going to sustain him through some very difficult days in the future. Paul said it like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised us the dead. And I think this season of David's life was to help David to rely on the very word of God. We had, did not have to do that. Let me give you another thought. Why would God allow such hardship for David? I think in the other psalm that David writes, pens after this event, Psalm 34, David writes these words, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I've come to realize that it's in the most difficult moments in life that Jesus takes the It's through the muck of life that I see Jesus the clearest. I think in some weird, strange, sovereign way, this hardship is a gift from God. Now let's not end there. Psalm 34, we also read these words that sound kind of strange. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We go, okay, I get that. That's what's going on in your life, David. And God did deliver you. But then listen to these words. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And you go, what is David talking about? And we go to John chapter 19, and we, and we read about Jesus on the cross, and, 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 and they have to put them to death because the Sabbath is coming, and, 
And so they come upon Jesus and, and they're going to break his legs and they don't have to because he's already dead. So they take the sword and they thrust it through his side and it bursts with water and blood and shows that he was already dead. And so like the lamb at the Passover, they did not need to break his legs. And somehow David, as he's going through this incredible, difficult time, pens these words that are predicting and pointing us to this Jesus. You see, David was not merely the great, 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 great granddaddy of Jesus, but his life in so many ways foreshadowed another king that would have to suffer on his way to the throne. This king, Jesus, would willingly undergo even greater sorrows and yet without sin. But we were his enemies and received grace and forgiveness and life eternity. And as we consider David, may we see Jesus. Lord, I love you. Oh, Lord, the reality is you love me. You love us far more than I or we ever could love you. Thank you. That love was evidence when you gave your son to die upon a cross. Thank you. Father, may we never tire of those words. Father, as we reflect on the life of David, may we look past him and may we see Jesus. And may we marvel that you would willingly go through the muck of life before you would come to the very throne the very right hand of your Father. Thank you. Lord, may we learn from David, but may we taste and see that you are David. Father, I pray that you bless these people with your word. May it steep and grow throughout this week. For your glory and because of your mercy. In your name we pray. Each week we close around the table. And I think that's important for a number of reasons because we, we stop to remember what Christ has done. But we also proclaim his death till he comes. It's a celebration because it points to a feast that is to come. But it's a good thing. On Wednesdays, we gather downstairs for a family uh, night. Um, we thought we'd make some changes to how we do this. We like the idea that we gather around the table as family. We thought it might be wise if we, uh, we did it with some instruction and some leadership. So each group, and I'm going to encourage maybe groups of about a half a dozen or so, we're not going to be that, that picky, but in groups of about that many, we gather around the table, and I will lead you to the communion as the band plays. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to join us. Just come down the center of the aisle, gather in a group of about six to eight, We'll take part, we'll take the bread, break it, we'll, we'll dip it into the cup, we'll remember that his body was given for us, that his blood was shed for us, and then we'll go when the next group will come. Make sense? 